0: Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula 1. My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today is Mr. Mark Daly, but that's because this is a continuation of our interview series and once again we have an incredibly exciting guest joining us today. Joining us is Elizabeth Blackstock. Elizabeth is a lifelong motorsports fan and a professional journalist whose work can be seen in Jalopnik as a news editor, Race Weekend, French Stretch and much, much more. In addition, Elizabeth is co-authoring the eagerly anticipated Formula One book, Racing with Rich Energy, How a Rogue Sponsor Took Formula One for a Ride, which we're expecting this fall. Elizabeth, how are you?
1: I am doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It is wonderful to be here.
0: You've also worked very closely with friend of our show, Magnus Greaves. And Magnus is, as a reminder, the founder and publisher of the Race Weekend publication, which we're huge advocates of. So I'm excited. I'm excited to hear about how that came to be and your experiences working on that publication. But before we really get going here, I, I have to ask How and when did you become passionate about motorsport? When did it enter your life? And then furthermore, at what point in your life did you come to this realization that your passion for motorsports and your passion for writing and journalism and publishing could be combined into one career path?
1: So I grew up in Michigan, which has a very distinct car culture, which is, you know, that's where cars were born. Like that's, that's the place. So my whole family was in the automotive industry. um, And there was a a general interest in all things cars, which turned into motorsport. Um, We watched a lot of NASCAR when I was growing up. We were very big Mark Martin fans. Uh, I have pictures of me and like my helmet and my race suit that we had. That was, that was my Mark Martin outfit. Um, Yeah, we, we watched like, you know, we weren't like hardcore. We never went to a race, but we watched regularly, um, and we watched, you know, a little bit of Car, a little bit of F1, but it wasn't super accessible. Um, but my family actually quit watching uh, in 2001 when Dale Earnhardt died because that race was actually during my brother's birthday party. Um, so it was one of those things where my mom just, like, turned the TV off and she was like, we're done with this for now. Um, not going to happen. We're just n- no more racing on Sundays. Um, but, like, I, I kind of stayed interested. Not really. Um, it wasn't cool to like what your parents liked, so I kind of grew out of it as I got older, um, and I moved more into into music. Um, but as as things went on, uh, I became a fan of Chris Hemsworth, and I was desperate to see Rush when it came out. Uh, we went opening day. I, I mean, I was interested, like, race cars are cool. I liked cars anyway, um, but, like, predominantly Chris Hemsworth as a 1970s, like, race car driver was like, that was my shtick. Uh, (laughs) But I walked out of that movie with my mind blown. I could not believe that it was actually a real life story. Um, And I went and I like looked it up as i got home and i was like okay well that you know hollywood had its hand in there but the real story is actually even more interesting than what the movie shows like they nicky laudo and james hunt were like friends and roommates at one point so the fact that they had this huge rivalry in 1976 had this whole other twist to it that i didn't know about uh and then i just found absolutely fascinating so that was that was how i got into motorsport like hardcore i was in high school at that time uh just about to graduate um and I didn't actually, like, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know what I wanted to write about. Um, and it didn't actually click that I could write about racing until uh, in, like, 2015 and 2016, I'd started writing about my experiences as a woman at the racetrack because the grid girls' conversations were ramping up as to whether or not F1 should have them or get rid of them. Um, and so I wrote a lot about kind of the way that people perceive and treat women at the track. Um which isn't always fun or pleasant, but those stories gained a lot of traction. Um, I actually had one that got cross-posted to Jalopnik. So that was kind of how I had my first introduction to a lot of the writers and editors there. Um, and as that kind of went on, I started to realize I could write about that. Like I could I could actually do this as a career. Um, actually, like Red Bull reached out to me uh, and I did some some freelancing for the American... Uh, Red Bull publication for a while especially that was like right when Fernando Alonso was going over to IndyCar um, so there's a lot of crossover between like why does this matter um, and what's you know the history of F1 IndyCar crossovers in the past um, so that that was fun and then in oh god I think it was 2017 or 2018 I started Jalopnik as a, a weekend writer uh, then moved into staff writer and now I'm the breaking news editor.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned Rush I still to this day I'm not Entirely sure how that film got made. the The appeal at the time was probably very narrow globally, and it was just so polished, and the production value was so incredibly high. I felt like it was a bit of a gift to to Formula One fans everywhere. Certainly rewatchable as, as well. I got to ask, and and I think this is this is probably a good place to start from a, a journalism perspective. But you wrote extensively about. The grid girls, the, the elimination of grid girls in motorsports, the place of grid girls in motorsports. Liberty obviously had very much decided when they took over the sport that the time of grid girls on the Formula One grid was was over, it was done. MotoGP unfortunately lagged a little bit behind. When you started writing about this as a topic, what was the, what was the general reception to that?
1: There, I actually have a, a fun story about that. There was, like, some man who wrote this super long comment on my story about how I was infiltrating the pantheon of testosterone in motorsport. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, like, he was not pleased. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of pushback. There was um, a, a response that, like, well, this has always been this way and it's, you know, men like eye candy, so we have to keep them. Um, there was a very prominent sports car driver at the time who – told me that I was a very silly little girl uh, and his followers went absolutely crazy with that and sent me pictures of my own address. So like there was a lot of negativity that came from that but there was also a very a strong positive outlook where a lot of women were sharing their stories and their experiences um, and things that they had seen things that they had witnessed from other people where I think that kind of helped change the conversation a little bit where you know it was before it was kind of like a disembodied um, discussion, like we don't know who these grid girls are. It's a lot easier to just argue about something when you, you you know, you don't really have an invested personal interest. But when women started kind of coming forward and these are your friends or people you respect, other drivers, uh, media personnel, who, whoever it is, uh, to say like, I've, you know, I have personally had pictures taken of me at the track. Um I had people who just assumed I couldn't possibly know anything at all about racing. Um, I had men who tried to like explain to me about how they watched – they remember watching Formula One in Toronto uh, when they were kids and I was like, that never happened. Formula One never went to Toronto. Um, But, you know, stuff like that where it was like even uh, as as I grew as a writer – to have uh, so many people say like you can't possibly know anything about formula one you can't have opinions you can't have thoughts whatever the case is um so it 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 changed i think people's perspectives because it made them realize like this is something that's not just happening to grid girls like this is grid girls are kind of setting a precedent of women can be objectified wherever and however in whatever capacity they're at the track um which it was nice that formula one actually went through with it and you know, solely other series have kind of been getting with it too. So joining joining the 21st century.
0: Elizabeth, I really appreciate you sharing those those insights and those personal experiences. And I very much agree with every point that you just made. Have you found in in the past few years that there's been a bit of a shift in the composition of those that report on motorsports? You know, we talked before the show about the fact that historically this has been a male-dominated industry. Has that begun to change? We We also notice, and we have some pretty good statistics and data on those that consume our podcast, and... We're really proud of the fact that it's incredibly diverse and month over month, week over week, the percentage of our audience that is female is increasing and those female listeners also just happen to be some of the most engaged and some of the most knowledgeable and not to bore everyone with a story but my wife and I actually met and bonded over Formula 1 and she was passionate about Formula 1 because she was an engineering student so it was really interesting to her um but at the time, the sport didn't necessarily cater to, to female fans. In fact, obviously under the Bernie Ecclestone regime, it was a very narrow focus in terms of the target demographic and the target audience. But from your perspective, has, has there been a shift both in terms of those that are, that are reporting on the product and in terms of those that are now consuming the product, whether it's Formula One, MotoGP, Indy or NASCAR?
1: It's still it depends on where you're at. Um I had to earn my credentials I think more than a man would. Um like it, it's gotten to the point now where I think the read, you know readers and commenters on Jalopnik have accepted the fact that I actually know what I'm talking about when it comes to racing. Um and it's you know that took like 5 years to get to that point where I've had you know some of my my male colleagues who just join on and are immediately taken seriously like their opinions matter more um or they may like they're just kind of perceived as knowing more off right off the gate um so i think when you get those really passionate female fans like that's why they know everything like they i was quizzed all the time about like well, well if you think you know so much about racing then tell me who was world champion in 1965 uh, you know those kinds of like goofy things that are very gatekeepy with the sport so i think a lot of women kind of will jump in to the real deep end and get really involved um and i just liked history so i like came into it from that aspect of like you know that was the only reason why i knew um if you ask me anything about like 1990 onward i have no clue uh, <laughs> so uh, i just would look into it if you ask me anything about like 1960s and 70s um, but yeah there's still i've seen a much bigger shift because especially as we've had things like drive to survive um, that's brought F1 to a much larger audience. Um, you get women who are already journalists and well-established in other disciplines. So like tech journalists or other sports journalists who suddenly are like, F1 is awesome. Racing is super cool. Here's what I liked about it. Um, where that kind of like, you get that shift of it's a legitimate person that you've respected um, before because of whatever reason, Um which, which is I think, has helped the legitimacy and like helped establish that women are good at this and know what they're talking about. Um, there's also kind of been that cultural shift where we have, you know, there's an incentive to pay attention to more marginalized voices, um which has helped kind of bring, you know, especially bring the negativity to light. Um, like you get a lot of the drive to survive people who hate that women have started watching F one because of the show and like talk trash about the Drive to Survive fans. But like, I don't care, I don't, it just, I think we're getting, we're slowly getting to a point where it doesn't matter how you got into the sport um, because there's no way that every human being on this planet could be born watching a race, you know? We we get, we all come from somewhere unique and different and, you know, we're still not where we should be or where we could be, but it's, it. I think it has gotten at least a little bit better.
0: The work that you did around grid girls was obviously critical because I think sometimes established media don't necessarily ask the questions about, things that might be considered a norm or a traditional convention of a motorsport. And obviously objectifying women in the way that they were being objectified on the grid wasn't appropriate and wasn't appropriate in 2018. And it certainly wasn't appropriate in 2000. And and sometimes people have to ask those difficult questions for the sport to, to reflect internally on the way that they conduct their business. So kudos to you for your work there. Now, I have to ask you a question. You've written some really great work that looks at the historical narrative of motorsports. And recently, I was reading a really great piece that you had done about Le Mans and NASCAR, which I think a lot of people, including myself, may not have known was ever a thing that the two were ever married and that NASCAR actually sent competitors and cars over to France to compete. And I thought that was thrilling. From your perspective, you know, having now been in the industry for a number of years, what what work has been your favorite? What was your favorite topic? What was your favorite thing to research? What stories do you look back most fondly on?
1: It's so, I mean, obviously I think one of the big ones was like the Rich Energy Saga because that was the first time I'd actually followed a story as it unfolded and reported regularly on something that was happening. Um, but in terms of like history, um, one of the ones that I think means the most to me personally was um, in the 1950s in America, um, the post-war racing scene was predominantly on public roads, um, and in early 1950s in Watkins Glen, a seven-year-old boy was killed in a crash, uh, and it wasn't even really a crash; it was just a car brushed the crowd, and he died. Um, and we don't we don't talk about him. His name was Frankie Fazzari. Uh, there's you know if you go to Watkins Glen, there's no memorial for him. There's no recognition for him, and you know his family still lives in the area, and I've spoken to some of his. Later, family members, even people who had seen, you know, were there when he was killed. And that was why motorsport began the transition to closed course racing. These were, you know, permanent, purpose built race circuits. I think that one, you know, personally, that one meant a lot. Um, Watkins Glen is one of my favorite racetracks. It's where I met my husband, Um, you know. It was it's it's just one of those beautiful tracks that I can't get enough of. And to be able to bring a little bit of that history to light, I think that was like personally really important. Um and I think other other things like that that kind of touch p- the personal aspect. Um, I like Francois Sever. Uh he won a single race in 1971 and died in 1973. Um, so I did kind of like a personal piece about how, you know his history and Probably how I wouldn't like him if he were still alive because he seemed a little bit of a misogynist, um, but that's okay because I get to kind of rewrite his history to you know ma- take the things I want out of it and help you know become part of my life. So that was another another fun one where you know just just the fact of like getting to look back and see why things are the way they are now because of what they were in the past um, is like that's just a lot of fun.
0: That's such a fascinating story, and it really reflects the fact that motorsports developed in the United States in very much a different way than it did in Europe, where many tracks, including Silverstone, were built on now unused or underutilized military airstrips. I think it's also really interesting that you speak to the fact that there are these milestones or moments of inflection within motorsports that trigger change. And unfortunately, in the story that you shared, there hasn't been credit where credit is due for triggering the transformation or transition to dedicated closed circuits. But certainly, if you look at Other forms of motorsports, we only need to look as far back as Imola in 1994 to see a transformational and revolutionary change to the way that the FIA managed safety in Formula One in particular. Maybe now share an example of a story that you've written in the past that got a really positive or rather maybe a really surprising reaction. You know, you wrote something, you were expecting a certain kind of reaction, but you got a very positive or an outpouring of support for something that you had written.
1: I actually the the personal stories that I've written um are the ones that tend to get that I think because it humanizes me as a writer and turns me from just being like you know some words on a page to an actual human being. Um so like I wrote a story about how my mom was the one who taught me how to drive. Um, and like the way, like we'd had a very difficult relationship prior to that, but being forced to sit in the car with her for 62 hours while I got my, my learner's permit, um, completely revolutionized the way that our relationship was. And like, that's the reason we're close today was because I had to do that. Um, and she was the one who did it with me. My dad wouldn't do it. Um, and it kind of changed my perspective of what I thought of my parents and like who, my parents divorced when I was very young um, and there was a lot of name calling and a lot of kind of back and forth. So to kind of see my mom from this different light, um, like that that one got a really good response because a lot of people understood finally like, you know, this, I come from like a legacy of women doing things with cars. Like my mom couldn't care less about anything else about cars. Like she just drives because she's got to and she buys cars because they're you know what they what she needs but that was so crucial to me as a person because it you know cars became a safe spot for me um, and that was really nice the same thing with the Francois Sever story um, i wrote one about the difficulty of moving um and especially moving cross country because i you know i grew up in michigan i moved to texas then i went to grad school in philadelphia and then moved back to texas so there was a lot of kind of back and forth. Those, those are the things. Like it actually is kind of surprising um, that people they want to share their own stories and they want to, you know, just say thanks for sharing yours. Um, th- like that blows my mind because usually, you know, when you're when you're a writer, you kind of those aren't the ones you think will do well. I guess, um, I especially at a site like Jalopnik where it's a little more punchy. Um, people are expecting news and hot takes. Um, to have like the softer side get a little bit of a, a positive response is kind of nice.
0: In the spirit of relating to our predominantly North American audience, we we try to relate to North American sports and I think if you look at Major League Baseball, obviously they draw well in the playoffs in the World Series, but they have notoriously bad demographics, which mean that the folks that are watching Major League Baseball are typically, and I'm talking in season, are typically a much older demographic. And there's a reason why when you watch Major League Baseball, there's so many lawn commercials. Ideally, professional sports and motorsports would want everybody watching, whether they're 12, 18, 30, 40, 50, or 60. But if there's a target demographic, it's typically a younger demographic, say 18 to 40, because they're typically deemed to have disposable income, and they're more attractive to sponsors. Sponsorships, revenue, commercials aside, what do you think that established motorsport series like Formula One and Indy... And NASCAR can do to better appeal to a younger audience.
1: I think there's like there's a little bit to take from so many different series, which is like really fun. Um, like IndyCar is so great for fan access. Um, that was the reason why I became a hardcore Indy fan. Was I'd gone to three? Th- no, I'd gone to four F one races before I actually went to an IndyCar event. And I could do IndyCar on like a third of the budget that it took to do a Formula One race. Um, And I could do fun things like I could spend the extra money and get a paddock pass and a hot pit pass and see the cars up close and see the drivers up close for very, very little money. Um, Obviously, like F1 is a little bit more more high, high class and high high tier. um, But, you know, there's a way to like to reach out to fans and get a little bit more personal and to offer fans some sort of opportunity for access like they don't even they stopped doing um autograph sessions at circuit of the americas for the u.s grand prix well before covid started um and that was always really disappointing because that's like you know that's the only time these people have to meet their their heroes um like you used to have to get Dakota early like crack a on be there when the gates open because you had to book it and run for a wristband so that you could get in line to get these autographs um But people did it because it meant a lot to them. And, you know, I think, you know, something like F1 or even NASCAR could benefit from this ability to reach out to fans. Um, But at the same time, um, I think like something like NASCAR has a lot of I think the schedule is a little bit too jam packed, but the consistency of its schedule helps keep fans involved. Um, When you've got like, for example, IndyCar, when you have a month between races, People lose interest, um, especially when you've got something like Formula E. There are huge gaps between events Um, that's that's not good for, you know, maintaining fan interest. Um, People have forgotten what happened at the last race by the time you get to the next one. Um, I think something, you know, a little more consistency is good, but obviously like not enough to, you know, not 30 some races a year. That's a little bit much. Um, But even like Formula E has then. Now, it like they've taken a completely different look to the way that they promote the series. Um I was recently a guest of the series uh for the Mexico E-Prix. Had a wonderful time. Like that was a bucket list track, but I was the only motorsport journalist that Formula E invited. Um they brought a British pop culture journalist and a Brazilian soccer journalist as well to provide access to these people from a totally different perspective who are looking and taking completely different angles um i think like that is important too like to be able to you know see racing as like well beyond what it it currently is and to see it well beyond what it has been um is really important like it, it doesn't, you don't think you want a gossip columnist to go to a Formula One race, but then you think about all of the drama that goes on at a Formula One race and all the stuff that happens off track and all of like the fighting that goes on between team principals. And it's like, yeah, actually, like that could totally work. Um, so I, I just think they need, they need to look at it from a different perspective. They need to look at it, I don't know, everyone needs to take themselves less seriously and have a little bit of fun, I think is the main thing. Like Formula One is very... uh very, it it takes itself too seriously. Um, And I think something like Drive to Survive that broke down those barriers and showed that drivers could be fun and like the series could be funny and that there was like drama, but it wasn't always this like end of the world kind of battle for a win. Um, I think like that kind of helped change perceptions a little bit. And I think that's something that needs to keep, you know, we need to keep that around.
0: OMG, like you you really just need to look at Formula One prior to the takeover by by Liberty. It was, the entire paddock was in a sh- mm-hmm. shroud of secrecy.
1: Worst. Yeah, no social media, no nothing, no old races. Like, I remember back in the day, the pinnacle of entertainment was like every so often a team would respond to another team on Twitter. Like that was it. That was the big thing. <laughs> that was the personality. Like,
0: oh. Oh, so true. <laughs> I very much agree with you About the fact that Formula One at times in its history, well, really at any time, maybe before 2017, took itself very, very seriously. And guess what? Netflix, box-to-box films, Formula One, they collaborate on Drive to Survive. And guess what? All of a sudden, we discover drivers and personalities within the paddock have personality. We're big fans for that reason of lily herman's engine failure newsletter which comes out every single monday and she does a fantastic job because she really leans into the lighter funner side of formula one and she does it in a way that's still very 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 on point and and professional and it's a lot of fun and i'm glad we're getting those angles now because a few years ago we certainly weren't seeing or hearing any type of reporting like that all right guys we're going to take a quick break pay some of those proverbial bills and we'll be back in just a jiffy
2: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Now, before we get back to our interview with Elizabeth Blackstock, I just wanted to take a minute to first thank all of you that make the effort to follow us, to, to listen to every single podcast. But I have another big favor. If you ever have the opportunity and you want to give us a review, if you want to give us a rating in your favorite podcast app, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Apple, it means a tremendous amount to both of us, and it's a big deal for the show. So if you ever get a chance, we'd really appreciate it. Now back to the show. Elizabeth, a couple of months ago, a magazine crossed my desk, and I was gobsmacked, and the magazine was Race Weekend. Race Weekend, of course, is created by... Magnus Greaves. He is the initial creator. He is the founder. He is the visionary of that publication. And like I said, I was gobsmacked because I didn't think there was an appetite in the publication industry to create a large format ad-free magazine all about Formula One. I've received a couple of issues. I had subscribed right away. We've become really great friends, partners with Magnus. We promote the product. We've done in competitions. We've given away subscription. It's been a lot of fun. The issue that I love the most is the 1970s edition, which is a reflection on Formula One during that era. My question for you is, how did your paths cross with Magnus, and how did you end up being so involved in that fantastic 1970s edition?
1: Well, Mark, I'm sure you know like Magnus is endlessly at work marketing the magazine, uh, always talking to someone, always emailing someone, always, always doing something. Uh, so he reached out to me at Jalopnik and was like, I have this, in, you know, this magazine. I can send you a copy. Um, if you want to write about it, that'd be great. If not, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, let me send it to you. And I was like, absolutely. I would, you know, I, I do a series on Jalopnik about, you know, reviewing race car books. Um, and this seemed a little bit more than a traditional magazine. It's more kind of themed. So I was like, absolutely. Like, I'd love to look at it. Um, th- but I was blown away when I opened up the package, like this thing, this magazine is huge. The pictures are gorgeous. Um, the the format is beautiful. Like there's just so much that's aesthetically pleasing about it um, that I was like, okay, this is neat. Like this... The first edition kind of took a look at the different venues where racing is held in Formula One and it went beyond just like what happens on track. You know, there was like food recommendations and like nightlife recommendations and all this other stuff that I was like, this is awesome because this is like when I first started going to races in other countries, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I didn't know what the culture was like. I didn't know what to do outside of the track. Um, I didn't know like anything so having something like that where I was like okay this could have been like really helpful uh, you know five years ago and I was planning my first trip to like Montreal or Austria to get a sense of like what what to do when I'm not at the track um, so I you know wrote an article and I emailed Magnus and I was like okay listen like I'm i a freelance right now so if you ever want someone to you know do some writing for another issue by all means, think about me. Um, I'm happy to talk about whatever. And he was like, cool, well, I have, you know, this idea for this next issue that's F1 in the 1970s. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to tell you uh, to consider me. I'm going to tell you to have me do this one. Like, I'm I'm the person for this one. Um, yeah, uh, like the 1970s and F1 is like, that's my thing. As I said, got into it via Rush. Um, and like, that was kind of where my interest started was – Researching that era because there was so much that changed from 1970 through 1979. Um, Safety, the technology, the drivers, like everything was just wild at the time. So Magnus was like, absolutely, let's talk. Uh, So we talked and we did the thing and I had a a wonderful time doing it. Um, It was like one of the it was the most fun I think I've had doing a long form project like ever um, and we've worked together on the subsequent issue that's not out yet that I'm not going to spoil. Um, but that one was also very, very keen to my interests as well. Um, so yeah, it was it was a great time. Um, being able to just kind of break down the 1970s one year at a time was fantastic. Like it gave me a chance to kind of talk about some of the, the interesting facets of the 70s that people don't know about. Um, Like there was one one fella who got the like the first DNF, DNQ and like, oh, God, there's something else that he did. Like it was the only driver who didn't qualify, finish or like do something else in a race um, because he was like accidentally entered. Um, You know, it was just like really neat stuff um, that that I got to talk about that like I just didn't have a place for before. Um, And Magnus gave me that venue where I could write about it.
0: Elizabeth, full disclosure, I run to the mailbox every day hoping to see an oversized Formula One publication, (laughs) so your teasing is killing me. I I do have to ask, from... A technical perspective, from a logistical perspective, I think conventionally magazines, uh, newspapers would be based out of a single office and you'd have all these teams that are collaborating. You'd have timelines, they'd send the final product off to the printer, the printer would distribute it to the end user, the end user, the consumer. This was a little bit different because one, we're COVID, and two, it seems like this is a magazine that is largely put together collaboratively but virtually. Talk a little bit about your experience working on this publication in a virtual environment, working remotely.
1: Yeah, I work from home with Jalopnik, so it wasn't a big a big difference for me, but it was my first time ever in print. So it was interesting to kind of see that aspect of it, to see the way that the formatting came together and the way that um, like I had, you know, for the more recent issue, I had to add a little bit to one of the sections because um, of the way that the formatting was already done. It needed just a little, like a little bit more text to kind of visually make it work. So that kind of like, that was really interesting. Uh, but I think, you know, the big thing was the the delay of writing. You know, everything in, at Jalopnik is a very fast turnaround. There's nothing that sits in edits for a long time. Um, and as soon as it's ready to go, it gets published, um, which is completely different than what you're doing with a print magazine where that you know it kind of sits on the back burner for a while as everyone goes through and makes sure like you know the publication is good you can't go back and edit it later so everything needs to be perfect Um, and then you know the printing and sending it out I think that was that was the biggest change for me was just like that patience of having to wait to see it like the final product Um, but it was it was good one when I finally got my hands on it
0: Elizabeth, do you think that there is still a future for printed publications, specifically in the motorsport world? I grew up consuming everything from Sport Compact Car to Top Gear to Evo to Sport Rider. But is there still a place for that that printed publication? Or do you see everything being purely digital unless it's a truly exceptional, unique, specialized product like the race weekend?
1: I think it will predominantly be digital and i think the thing that makes the reese weekend special is that it kind of almost feels like a collector's item um nothing in it is necessarily like topical in the sense that it has to be published at a very specific time but um it's enlightening nonetheless um and it's an an, it's an opportunity to get to kind of know something about formula one that you didn't know before uh from a different angle and i think that's kind of going to be where the future of that lies um you know, I've worked with some other some other specialist publications uh, that I cannot mention because it is not uh, published yet and it does not reveal that I'm working with them. But, you know, it, it I think it's also very, like, niche, kind of a collector's item. It's You're not just kind of publishing to get information out there in the sense that, you know, you can get all of that stuff on the Internet and you can get it a lot faster than you can get it in print. Um, if we're going to have something print, I think it's going to be something – that's special that's unique you know something that goes on your coffee table that you you know you care about uh, and that you're not just kind of like reading for the news
0: if you are interested in grabbing a subscription to the race weekend you can do so at theraceweekend.com. T H E R A C E W K N D dot t-h-e-r-a-c-e w-k-n-d.com and i believe it's designed to be issued quarterly so there would be a new issue that would drop every three months is that mm-hmm. correct
1: that's been the intention. The uh, The current issue that we're working on has been kind of delayed because we're trying to get, we were trying to get a big name involved in it uh, and it finally kind of worked out, but it just took a little while to get there. So again, stay tuned. Yeah, it'll be worth the wait. It's going to be great. Um, I got to do that interview and I had a
0: delightful time. Elizabeth, you just keep teasing this next issue, and I couldn't be more excited. So again, theraceweekend.com, T-H-E-R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com to pick up that subscription. Okay, so one of the questions that I was really excited to ask you is this one. Open wheel racing, Indy, Formula One, Formula E is enjoying an absolute Boom in interest in all of North America right now. Ratings are big in the U.S. Ratings are monstrous in Canada. We're seeing huge receptions to new events, either the Miami Grand Prix or even Nashville in IndyCar last year. What do you attribute this newfound passion to? Is this is this rekindling an old interest that maybe lay dormant? Is this new? Where is all of this passion and interest in open real racing coming from? All of a sudden.
1: So popularity in open wheel in America has kind of waxed and waned for years. And I think there's a good blend of factors like that kind of hit all at the right time to make this a thing. Uh, And like we were talking about at the start of the show, the big one is that we've moved on from the black stains in American open wheel history. Um, The IndyCar split and reunification is well over. Um, We have well moved past that. The terrible, awful, horrible 2005 U.S. Grand Prix at Indianapolis with all of the tire fiascos and like, you know, three cars racing were well past that. Um, we, you know, Formula One had to take a break in America after that because it was like it, it was just people weren't interested because it was a hot mess. Um So we've we've gone past that, like open wheel racing is not tainted with these memories now, um, unless you've been a fan for a very long time. But especially with this younger demographic, you're kind of coming at it from a fresh perspective. Um, Pairing with that, you've got series like F1 and IndyCar that are actually learning how to use social media. Um, And like we talked about earlier and before the Liberty Media era, like there was there was nothing on social media, like there was no... If you wanted to, like, learn a little bit about Formula One, you couldn't watch a video because there was, like, always a cease and desist. Uh, you couldn't, like, watch old races. You couldn't really learn anything about the sport unless you were actively watching it on TV. Um, and to kind of go off of that, there's actually, like, you can watch it on TV now. Um, racing is not hidden on some, like, back channel. Um, you don't even have to watch sports regularly to have ESPN and NBC. Um and that's where most of IndyCar and F1 will be aired. So it's I think there's just this good like combination of factors where like it's accessible if you find it on Drive to Survive, like that's awesome because now you can easily watch a Formula One race. Um, if you're just scrolling through TV, you can find IndyCar somewhere. Um, you know it's it's on USA Today and NBC I believe this year. Um, and there's only like one race that's on Peacock, which you have to purchase as a streaming service to watch. But everything is like it's right there um which is really nice like i think that kind of has all come together in this nice little package of you know we're we're moving past all of the nonsense um and we're kind of getting to that point where like people are realizing indie car racing is really really fun um drive to survive showed us that formula 1 can be fun and then you know last season was extremely competitive and just like crazy from start to finish which drew in a lot of other fans and if you're a fan of one form of racing, there's a good chance, especially in America, that you're going to look at what else is around. Um, so I do think Formula One kind of has helped IndyCar. That was certainly how I got into IndyCar, um, because I was sold on the premise of it's open-wheel racing, but it's actually fun. <laughs> so uh, I, had a, I had a friend send me a lot of, there. you know, there were old videos of, like, James Hinchcliffe in, in, a, in a dog washing machine um, that were on the internet for a while. Like, that was... That was the stuff of like you could see drivers kind of being goofy. Um, And that was like I think that's the part that appeals to people like these drivers are actually humans and are having fun. And we get that now with Drive to Survive and everything kind of has fed off of each other, which is nice.
0: One thing a lot of people may not realize is that back in the late 80s, and the early 90s, Indy was a global sport. It certainly, wasn't Formula One, but it was a global sport. And I'll always recall spending weekends with my grandparents in the UK, and we would watch, we'd watch Formula One, but we would also watch an awful lot of Indy. And back then, people might not know, but Nigel Mansell won the Formula One World Championship, jumped over to Indy, and won another championship. So there was this global exposure, and it wasn't really until the Indy, you know, say, carts split in the mid '90s that you really saw a death blow to to North Americans, specifically open wheel racing, and of course those sports didn't come together come together again until the quote unquote merger in two thousand eight two thousand nine when Indy IRL bought the remaining Champ Car assets. But uh, you're also right about the Formula One piece that you know Formula One continued racing in the U S until two thousand seven and took a five year absence before it came back to Texas in twenty twelve. But that two thousand five u.s grand prix at indianapolis was a total farce while some degree of optimism is warranted and justified when you look at the growth in indie tv numbers and formula one tv numbers both are still absolutely dwarfed, trumped by by nascar what do you think these open wheel racing series can continue to do? What can they learn? What can they borrow from other championships to continue to broaden their appeal and draw in new viewers and, and a more diverse viewership base?
1: So, this this one probably might be a little controversial, but I think Formula One needs to take a little bit of a stronger stand on certain issues, um, especially when it comes to things like people were very excited about the concept of We Races One when that was introduced. Um, which initially seemed to be some sort of, you know, catch-all phrase for support for the LGBTQ plus community, for the BIPOC community, um, to kind of show support for marginalized groups, and somehow ended up turning into mostly like a support of the NHS, the, the you know, hospital system in the UK, um, which, like, that was kind of how it was predominantly used at the time in 2020 when that came out. Like, obviously, it was the pandemic, but... Um it's it was more of like, I guess, a politically correct, not even politically correct. It was just the safe way to support show support for people. Um, and I think we've had a lot of instances where there are places where Formula One could show a little bit of backbone. Um, Nikita Mazepin, for example, allegedly assaulting a woman via Instagram story while he was drunk and she was drunk, um, could have used a lot more uh investigation than what it was given it was basically said like this is a team matter and Haas can deal with it and Haas you know issued an apology and Nikita issued an apology and then he subsequently deleted it so like there's there's a lot of places where I think especially when it comes to women to show that there's and any other marginalized community to show like you know this this is we support these things. We support the growth of the community. We don't tolerate this negativity um, that happens in our sport. You know, they've formula one did a great thing with its end racism campaign. um, The ability for drivers to show support. um, But then they like canceled it this year. And so like, you're not supposed to kneel anymore and there's no active show of support for the, you know, community of people of color. um, And you know, especially banning Lewis Hamilton from wearing his Breonna Taylor T-shirt on the podium, um, you know, things like that, it, it need there, there needs to be a lot more work. Um, and I know people will probably disagree with that. Um, there, there's a very, you know, the older contingent of Formula One fans, the ones who advocated for grid girls uh, probably won't, won't like to hear that. But I think that's kind of, you know, NASCAR gained a lot of fans when it banned the Confederate flag from its tracks. And that was a huge move. That was a super important move that resonated with a lot of people and it was resonated at the right time. Uh, And I think Formula One could stand to do a lot, lot better on that aspect.
0: Yeah, I, I think oftentimes that that Mazepan moment at the beginning of 2021 was it was an inflection moment for Formula One. And for me, it was really how is not the FIA, not the team, but how is the commercial rights group Formula One themselves going to handle this? And when they basically deferred it to the team, it was deeply disappointing because, well, look, the team is clearly going to side with the driver because they're dependent on the funding that his he father's his money. bringing to the team. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely, and <laughs> yeah. and I look back to like let's take a look at the NFL in 2014 with Adrian Peterson in the in the Minnesota Vikings. The the NFL wasn't going to wait for the Minnesota Vikings to rule on that. That the NFL is going to dictate what the terms of that suspension are going to be. Correctly, and I absolutely agree that I think the that Formula One the commercial rights group needs to be a little bit more heavy handed when it comes to these drivers. That I understand they have a contract with that team, but as part of a future Concord agreement, there needs to be more unified discipline. And I think you make a really great point as well about the, the We Race As One ceremonies in the sense that I almost felt at the time that they were intentionally vague because they wanted them to be a catch-all and they didn't necessarily, does that make sense? That they didn't actually want to have to lean into any specific cause, but hey, look, we're doing something, even though mm-hmm.
1: after- I had those same criticisms.
0: And the other thing too, was even after the first week, they show it on TV and there's a mix of drivers standing and participating and some nod. Charles Leclerc, for instance, he was incredibly vague and almost spoke to the fact that, well, you know I can't be too involved because I'm going to upset our fans that wouldn't uh, would support this. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It's 2021. Why can't you lean into this? And then after the first week, they stopped showing the ceremony entirely. So you didn't even know that this vague...
1: Yeah, I know. I remember that second week they showed, like, it was the flyover they were showing. Yes, instead. Yes. I was like, oh, this is bad. Like, <laughs> this is bad news bears.
0: So I, I couldn't agree with you more that Formula One Liberty had made made monumental strides. I just think it's important to know that there's still, and I'm glad you agree that there's things that from a social perspective, yeah. they can There's so much work to, to be do. done. Absolutely. Okay. You know, I think we're going to take one more quick break. And when we get back, we're going to get into the meatiest part of this conversation and what I am dying to get into. So we're going to take one more quick break, pay a couple of <laughs> bills, and we'll be back in a, in a couple of minutes.
2: Learn more at marines.com.
0: All right, so 50 minutes into an interview that was supposed to be 20 minutes. Elizabeth, I cannot thank you enough for your time, but we are getting to my favorite part. So...
1: (laughs) I'm having a great time. <laughs> I'm glad so. to hear
0: that an hour in. You are working on a book with a colleague that is incredibly exciting. And it's been popping up on my Twitter timeline for months, for probably a year now. And I'm dying to get into this because I love the business of motorsports. I love the business of F1. And I love the history of F1. And the history of F1 is absolutely checkered with dodgy sponsorships, dodgy ownership. And it's remarkable that in the year 2019, it could still happen. You are working on a book with a colleague and I'll let you speak to this about the rich energy Haas saga from 2018, 2019. I'm incredibly excited for this. It's coming soon. What were the sources and the people that you leveraged to get information on? And were those people that you leveraged and utilized to, to put this book together, were they particularly forthcoming with material? How did you research this? How did the book come together?
1: So it first started uh, as a Jalopnik blog between myself and Alanis King, my colleague, who I'm writing the book with. Um, That initial one was very much just the financials, um, tracking down the fact that Rich Energy only had hundreds of pounds in the bank at the time that it, you know, had its sponsorship with with Rich Energy, or uh, excuse me, with Haas F1. Um, Tracked down kind of the previous owners of the brand Rich Energy, um, the weird trademark locations, one of which was you know, a like a window shop in Croatia. Um, so as we as we chose to go into the route of a book, uh, we were actually, so in, in 2020, uh, right before March, I decided that I was going to take a break from full-time work at Jalopnik to do some freelancing uh, and focus on grad school, which turned out to be an awful decision because the pandemic happened and no one wanted to buy anything. Uh, but during that, you know, that last day, a literary agent reached out and said, hey, do you guys want to write a book about this? Um, I was like, you know, there's enough here. We could probably make something fun happen. So we agreed. Um, and as we proceeded with the book, um, this agent, we, we wrote the whole thing. We signed on. We did everything right. The agent backed out at the last minute. Uh, and so we went directly to McFarland. Uh, and McFarland was very excited to have us. And we are very excited to be working with them. But the the sources thing, like that, that was the most difficult. Um, We reached out to hundreds of people. And I mean hundreds. We reached out to 70-some Haas employees. uh, And we got five Haas employees that would speak to us. Um, I reached out to every single person that Rich Energy ever sponsored. Only a handful would, you know, only a handful wanted to talk. Only a handful responded. And some flat out said, I have no interest in speaking about this. Um, we, we talked to the original owners, uh, of the U S arm of rich energy, uh, back before William story, the CEO currently even owned the brand. Um, you know, we, we talked to a lot of people. There were a lot of people who wanted to talk. There were so many that wanted to talk specifically only on background. Um, so there was a lot that we found out that we even couldn't put into the book because we couldn't get anyone to send us a document to verify it or find a second person to respond and, you know. Say that yes, this was true, which was really unfortunate because there was talks that Rich Energy was going to buy a Formula One circuit. Um, I won't name which one because we can't. But there, you know, that was the thing that happened. There was a lot of strange sponsorship agreements. Um, we spoke to like the first athlete that Rich Energy ever sponsored, Dakota Schutz, uh, who's an extreme motor r- scooter rider, um, who was just not at all impressed. With the way that things went, um, yeah, there was there was so much that went into it. Just trying to get in contact with people, um, so many emails, so many like follow up emails. We had spreadsheets upon spreadsheets, um, just to make sure that everything was like kosher, everything was good. We had like three recordings of every interview we did. We like tried to have video specifically because we wanted to be able to see people and, like, read their body language as we were talking to them. Like, oh, there, oh, there's a lot that went into it. But at the end of the day, we did not get as many people talking as we wanted to. And I think we will have a lot more people reach out to us once the book is published. Um, but at this point, who knows? There's probably going to be a sequel because the Rich Energy Saga never ends.
0: Without giving too much of the book away Rich Energy was, is a British energy drinks company that partnered with Haas to be their title sponsor for the 2019 season, and they adorned the cars with a, a black and gold livery, which admittedly didn't look too badly, but I think people were deeply suspicious of the sponsorship from the get-go, and then everything just fell apart mid-season. Okay, question. So you've done a lot of digital print. You've worked with Magnus, as we discussed, on a print publication like Race Weekend. Talk to me a little bit about the adjustment that was necessary when it came to writing a book. What did you learn? How was it different than what had come before in your career?
1: So I have written fiction books before, um, as part of like i've always wanted to be a fiction writer and also that was just part of my graduate program for earning my master's degree was to write in a novel which was so much fun writing a long-form nonfiction book was a hot mess uh, <laughs> there's when it comes to like reality and the the context that you can put in like we weren't sure how deep we wanted to go there were, you know, we had to do so much research and do so much digging um in places that, like, I never even thought that I would have to go digging. Like, I had to learn – oh, God. We had to learn, like, copyright law to know exactly how much we could quote someone from a different story. We had to quadruple check everything for accuracy. We fact-checked that book, I think, six times, and that included – hunting down any word that had a connotation that could possibly get us in legal trouble. Um, so like, you can't say that rich energy was a fake sponsor because it wasn't, but like, that's kind of what people would have called it. So we had to find the synonyms of like questionable because it was, it was questionable. Um, but there, you know, there were other synonyms we had in there that were like, that just has a connotation that could be legally troublesome. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was very intensive it was a two year process um and like this is going to sound like a, a terrible horrible pretentious flex um but when i do fiction stuff like it's easy like i can i when i was over the summer of 2020 i wrote a book which like it was you know 75,000 words no big deal the rich energy book is the same and it took two years um because there was so much other stuff that had to go into it um and my biggest problem was that we did not cite along the way. So I had to do that all in a week before we submitted <laughs> the book. And there were over a thousand different citations and references, which was the worst thing I've ever experienced. So it was awful. But it was a great time writing a bit about it and like learning. There were so many times when I'd call Alanis and I'd be like, you are not going to believe what I just heard. <laughs>
0: I think once this book becomes published, you and Alanis will absolutely be the historians, the subject matter experts on all things rich energy slash Haas. And I I also follow Alanis on Twitter, and I think it's hilarious how she, and kudos to her because I'm a big merch guy, but she is becoming something of a museum curator in terms of all of the Haas racing merchandise she's (laughs) been able to procure and establish within her collection. Yeah, she's got a piece of
1: the car. She's got pieces of the car. She's got Roman Grosjean's fire suit and his like fireproof o- or underwear. She has like mugs. She has old like merch that was sold. I was, she's she's gonna have a museum. Like I was like, you can you can charge for this. Like we should we should leverage this when the book comes out, uh, because we're we're aiming for a publication like in fall of 2022, uh, specifically to coincide with the U.S. Grand Prix because Alanis and I are both based in Texas. Uh, and it would be great to be able to do kind of public events with people, um, and I was like, we need to leverage that somehow. Like, bring out your your little collection and you know display it where whatever we end up <laughs> doing, you know, we do a release party or something. Have the <laughs> you can see Roman Grosjean's fireproof overalls from that godforsaken <laughs> era, <laughs> and have a good time.
0: I would hope that everybody listening at home is now suitably intrigued by this story. Now, we're not gonna give away any of the juicy details because quite frankly, we need a hook to get you folks to go out and give you and, we have to give you a reason and to actually buy actually buy the book. With that said, Elizabeth, where can somebody <laughs> actually go to pre-order this book?
1: So you can go to McFarlaneBooks.com. Uh it, we, I believe, we are currently and will probably remain the top book on the page. Uh, there was an incredible outpouring of support and response. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Um, if you just search their website, you should be able to find "Racing with Rich Energy." Uh, this is specifically for your U.S. and other North America-based uh, shipping. So, if you sign up for updates at RichEnergyBook.com, we will be able to provide further updates when we get you know, more word on international shipping, um, ebooks, audiobooks, um, autograph copies, all that other stuff. Um, that's where you'll go for that. So if you're in America, McFarlandBooks.com. If you are not, RichEnergyBook.com.
0: I have one last question for you before we let you go. Now, as soon as people heard that we were inviting you on the show for an interview, uh, we had some people ask a question. And this is a question that Daly and I actually get quite often, which is, can you provide some recommendations, some best practices, some advice on how to get started in the world of journalism, specifically as it relates to what I think is a passion for a lot of our listeners, which is motorsports. Do you have any best practices, advice, recommendations, or experiences that maybe you can share for everybody listening at home?
1: We're we're in an era uh, that's really awesome right now, where if you find your specific voice and your specific passion, that's how you're gonna succeed. Like there are thousands of aspiring motorsport writers that are doing the same race reports that are the same thing you can find on autosport, but what are you passionate about? Like what do what do you want to write about? Who are you? Who are you as a writer? What's your voice? I think that's that's the biggest thing. Like I stumbled into my job because I was writing about things I was passionate about, like women in motorsport and history and all that other good stuff. Um and that helped me stand out as, you know, a writer that was doing something that was special and unique. You have to find your thing. Um I know a lot of people have done you know people have asked me for advice before and i'm like well you can't just do race reports like everyone does race reports it's good to do them because it shows that you have that skill but that cannot be your only thing like you have to you know it's you're building your own resume you need to make yourself stand out in some way so having something fun and interesting is i think the best way to go about that especially if it's something like you you really care about
0: so as you know and everyone knows listening at home we are very much a formula one centric podcast seasons early we're only a couple of races into the championship but do you currently have a favorite for the driver's title and also for the constructor's title I'm i'm eager to hear your early season predictions
1: it's so hard because we're still like in that era of figuring out how this new car works where i like can't make a prediction about who who's gonna be best or like who's gonna be worst yeah, I think I think Ferrari is going to have a good year though. If I'm going to pick a world driver or a world constructors championship, I think it's going to be Ferrari, um, which I'm torn about. I'm not a Ferrari fan, um, which is fine, um, but I am like I am a Haas fan. They've they've grown on me as things have gone on, and so you kind of have to be a Ferrari fan if you're going to root for Haas because Haas has their engines. So if it means we get to see more Kevin Magnussen top fives, so that's good with me.
0: Well, Haas and Ferrari are both off to a very, very strong start. And while we probably could have predicted a strong start out of the Italian squad, I don't think anybody could have expected what we've seen out of Haas so far. You know, with that, Elizabeth, I cannot thank you enough once again. For all of our listeners at home, though, where can people find your work? Where can they follow you on social media? How can they connect with you digitally?
1: I am predominantly at Jalopnik. Uh, You can just find me there. Uh, Search for Elizabeth Blackstock and I will be there or you can just search for a racing word and I will probably have written about it. (laughs) But I am also on Twitter uh, at Eliz, E-L-I-Z underscore Blackstock, B-L-A-C-K-S-T-O-C-K.
0: And with that, we will dim the lights, Elizabeth, from all of us here at the Scuderia F1 podcast. We cannot thank you enough for your time. This was fantastic. We will absolutely have to have both you and land on in the future when the book is closer to print and when it's about to hit the bookstore so we can revisit what a fascinating topic this is. For everybody at home, if you'd like to give us a follow on Twitter, at SkidariaF1Pod, that would be fantastic. And if you're enjoying the show, we would absolutely love if you can give us a review, give us a rating on Apple or Spotify. It means the world to both of us. We'll be back in just a couple of days to get you all set up for the next Grand Prix. Once again, thanks for listening. This is Mark, signing off.